This is Mike Cohen, author of Neurofeedback 101. You are listening to the NeuroNoodle Network Podcast. Thank you all for joining NeuroNoodle's Neuropsychology and Neurofeedback Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren. You guys have close to 60 years of clinician experience, don't you? Yeah, it, it right. adds up. It's shocking, but yeah, the, the math works out. Today's special guest is Mike Cohen from CenterForBrain.com and author of this awesome book called Neurofeedback 101, Rewiring the Brain for ADHD, Anxiety, Depression, and Beyond. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, smash that like button on button on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, please. Quick uh, news of the day, quick article here, Skip. You want to give us a quick summary on the shorter the delay, the more effective the neurofeedback? Sure. Uh, it, it looked like uh, there were some folks that were able to develop an algorithm to shorten um, feedback response through the EEG uh, and showing effectiveness of the shorter response times uh, in both training initially and also sustainability of training. And uh, through discussions we've had about this article, there's, there's some questions about uh, you know, the, the parameters of the study, et cetera. Um, but the gist of the article was that this is showing some promise um, in ability to be able to shorten uh, response times, which again could maybe have effects of training overall. So it was, it was an interesting article. It certainly um, led to some conversation and discussion between us. So that always makes something interesting, I guess, at least on our level. And, and what that really uh, fun, fundamentally means is that neurofeedback tells your brain when it's doing the right thing. And if you tell it faster, the brain gets it quicker. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Mike. Uh, let's see, book you should know. Obviously, Mike Cohen's Neurofeedback 101, which we'll get into in a second here, uh, which goes into our main topic of Neurofeedback 101 and talking with Mike Cohen from CenterForBrain.com. Mike, thanks for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, company and then we'll talk about your book? Tell us about Center for Brain. Is it CenterForBrain.com, right? CenterForBrain.com. We're actually Center for Brain Training, but I have been personally doing neurofeedback for about 25 years. Uh, I have worked with thousands of clients. I've worked with several thousand clinicians, uh, health professionals who are learning neurofeedback because most health professionals, just like all of you guys, uh, have to learn about it because it's not really uh, currently in the curriculum for most uh, health professional schools. So you know, you get these professional classes. Are, so we do some of the training, but we work with lots of clients with anxiety, just lots uh, for the last uh, almost 15 years here. Uh, ADHD, uh, behavior problems, and uh, mood issues, and a lot of concussions. We work with a lot of concussions and uh, post-concussion kind of problems because it's far more, a lot more people have gotten whacked in the head somewhere along the way. Right. And they, and then they've been told, oh, there's nothing wrong, but then they have all these problems later. And so people forget to say, oh yeah, that was from the concussion three years ago or five years ago and nobody told them. So we work with a lot of that. Well, Mike, you'll figure that out as we go on in this interview. Uh, I played football and I've took a couple of dings to the head. I'm not quite done with my neurofeedback, but 
Uh, have you always been in uh, Jupiter, Florida? I uh, originally, well, I lived in Atlanta for 25 years. So. Oh, that's right. We, we moved to Jupiter. Um, Atlanta has a lot of air quality stuff. So we, we ended up moving closer to the ocean where we had better air for uh, my wife's asthma. And so that actually worked out quite well. So they we, got a lot of pollen, a lot, a lot of pollen in Georgia, right? Oh my gosh. It rains pollen. I mean, you, the cars are filled with pollen at, at, during those times. So it makes it very hard for people who have breathing issues. Got it. I had to go to Alpharetta quite a bit in one of my past lives, and I always remember wiping off the car. Uh, okay, and then tell us about uh, Neurofeedback 101, Mike. When did you write it? Uh, what 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 caused you to write it? Uh, let's get into that. So one of the challenges that I mean, Neurofeedback 101 is really, well, how does your brain fix itself? I mean, we, we, we say this word neurofeedback, but really – Neurofeedback is how does your brain, how can you help your brain correct itself when it's not firing right, when your brain's not functioning as well as it should, when I'm dealing with attention problems or headaches or mood. And so explaining the technology to people that there's this technology that will cause you to actually change your brain is really hard to explain. So even though we, I've been doing it for years and I've probably tried, you know, a thousand different ways to explain it simply, whether I'm talking to uh, people who need it or whether I'm talking to health professionals, they always go, you're doing what to my brain? Are you doing this? How does that work? I don't understand. So I've been trying to come up with a way to make it simple. I've created a video that is like four minutes on YouTube and it, it does simplify things, but it's then people want to know more. So I went, I said, okay, I just need to write a longer version of this. And so that of course took five years um, because making it simple is really hard. The, the challenge is, okay, You've got ADHD, you've got anxiety, or you've got a kid with, with a problem. Um, well, what is it that you want to know? Do you really want to know how all this technology works? Or do you want to know, is this, are they going to zap my brain? Or is this really going to work? Or is there really any science behind this? Or can you give me some examples of kids really or adults who've had this benefit? Well, which one do you want to know? Everybody wants to know something different. So. I just, it took a long time to try to simplify it enough that people could flip through a short book and go, well, I just want to see a few cases, examples, or I've got all these questions. Let me go look at these questions. Or then the person who says, I want to know how your brain does this. So really that's how we organize the book um, and trying to create something that, you know, made it simple enough that people could at least grasp, you know, those core, whichever of those questions that they have uh, was the goal. And I had a lot of people come to my courses, professionals who said, oh yeah, you gotta write that book. And somebody needs to write that. Cause there's nothing out there that's simple and you go read the internet and you get a little confused and it's not quite in depth enough and it doesn't give you enough of a picture. And, you know, we all use the internet for all kinds of things, but a lot of people look at it and go, well, this looks interesting, but I want to know more. So this is a quick way. I mean, the first person who read it said, I scanned that book in an hour. 
and that was the whole book. I mean, you can you can pick out a few things. So how do you, but I also had to make the point, this really isn't about the technology. It's about how do you use the technology to help your brain change itself? And most people that's like, what? I mean, I can go down to the gym. You know, I can go to the gym for my brain. I can go down to your office and I've got anxiety and I can just learn to get rid of it. I mean, who told us that? Nobody said, we can, we can just go down to, you know, your office or to the, the brain gym, so to speak, because that's really what this is. And you can work those parts of your brain and you can strengthen it. You, you can do better at anxiety. You can do better at mood. You can actually just learn to pay attention. Who knew this stuff? So the challenge is also the word neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is scary. So how do we just say, hey, this is really just about your brain and helping with these issues and how do you exercise? This is an exercise. It's just a really cool exercise equipment. Well, I, I can attest for being the, the, the layman of the uh, four of us here. Uh, that's it's a great uh, it's a great read. Took me uh, a day to to get through it, and uh, it, re it really broke it down to uh, some simplistic uh, terms. And uh, I appreciate that. We all appreciate that, Doctor Laura, Doctor Wren. You you want to jump in? Sure. I, I had a question, and and uh, just echo what you said, uh, Pete. It's it's a pretty digestible read um, and then you get to straight up Q&A and, and that guides itself uh, as well in, in reading through the book um, but I think it does a really really solid job of just laying out this idea which is what I wanted to ask you about Mike of the brain fixing itself and and we don't have to dive too deep into philosophy but I think general western medicine is you go to a doctor and they fix you and we're all pretty well schooled in that way of medicine and then people come to us and specifically to you mike and they're like so how does this thing work my brain does what on its own um, i guess my question is are, are people open or, or are they receptive to this idea like hey you know your your brain's doing it yourself do, do they get it do they do it um based on that or does it take a couple sessions and they realize they're getting better and they don't care or maybe a little bit of both so i guess hopefully there's a clear question in there for you well, a lot of the reason that we all know people come, uh, because in a, in a lot of cases, people have found, even in our office, found us on the internet. Why did they get here? Because I was told I have to be on meds or I've been struggling with this problem. And either I don't want to be on meds, I don't want my child on meds, I've already been on meds and that's not working very well, or... Um, you know, I, I really need help. Even on the meds, I'm still struggling with these issues. So really, it kind of comes down to um, most people are open to something that they think might help them. And when they read a little bit about, you know, what's the simple concept here? You know, if you've got a weak arm, you know, if you go to a doctor, you get a pill, right? But if you have a weak arm, What's the best pill for a weak arm? I think it's called exercise. And if you pump your muscles in your arm and you keep pumping that, eventually your arm will get stronger. Most people get that concept real quickly. I say, okay, so your brain supports your emotions and your anxiety and your attention, things like that. And if we want you to pump your neurons instead of pumping your muscles, because your neurons are physical too, you can strengthen it. And a pill doesn't teach you to do that. Most people get that 
really quick or they get the concept, gee, I, can I do something myself? And it's surprising to me how often somebody's found stuff on the internet that just explain their feedback a little bit and they come and they go, I think I'm supposed to do this because I don't want to do either those other things aren't working or I'm having problems with meds or I don't want to do that. So yes, it resonates really strongly. A lot of them are even surprised that they never heard of it. Like, it's like, this makes sense. How come nobody ever told me about this? How come my doctors, how come my therapist never told me? I've even had people really mad. I've struggled for 10 years and in, you know, three sessions, I'm feeling better than the 10 years of stuff I tried to do with my meds and with my therapy. And they get mad. That's my, yep, that's my question, Mike. Why, why is it uh, not out there? So, uh, I mean, lots of people ask that and wonder, and it's, it's a little bit of a big picture question, okay? If you really go, well, how does, let's say we have a new drug. Well, how does that get out there? The minimum cost, I actually was involved a little bit in uh, healthcare with drug, Medicaid, drug companies and drug companies introducing drugs for a short time. And like the little drugs that you never heard of that are just being introduced in the market, they have a $50 million budget really to initially introduce them as marketing. That's not the research, that's not developing the drug, that's to get it out there. What do you have to do to convince all the psychologists and all the MDs? You have to have a lot of money to, you know, to affect the organizations and all that stuff. So it just takes a lot of money. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, it depends on how you look at it, this is a technology that nobody really owns. So nobody can make tons and tons of money on it. It's really just a service. It's really something that a clinician can use. But because no big companies can make tons of money, nobody's throwing a whole bunch of money. So really, that's the bottom line. And the other, which I mentioned to Skip recently, is, well, which, is it a psychologist who really, are those the ones that push neurofeedback? Is it other mental health therapists? Is it OTs, occupational therapists, or physical therapists, or chiropractors, or MDs, or psychiatrists? It doesn't belong to anybody. Anybody can actually learn. Any health professional can learn to do that, which is a great thing. But from a marketing standpoint, it's a terrible thing <laughs> because nobody owns it. None of the schools say, oh, we're going we're gonna to make our school the specialty in neurofeedback because which department would even claim it? So sorry for the long answer. You can cut it. <laughs> but that's the reality. I think it's a fair question. I think the the long answer is the, the right, good answer. It, it's perplexing. We're, everybody involved here and, and a lot of people listening probably are aware of the effectiveness of this and it comes back around to how the hell am I just hearing about this? And so I think it, it's a, a worthy question that we need to keep asking so it doesn't get asked so much anymore, if you know what I mean, right? That, that the word does get out about this intervention that can be really, really effective for people. And, and just as an odd example, that, that this we're not gonna focus on this, but we kind of talked about this earlier a little bit. Uh, let's take, you ever met somebody with migraines? I mean, we've all met somebody along the way who was a migrainer and they struggle with it and they take their drugs and you know that is the standard of care in medicine. You hear some drugs that help suppress this. When you're a feedback, is so remarkable at helping people. I mean, if you think of, I think of migraines as you are able to give yourself a game 
So neurofeedback helps your brain figure out how to get your brain to take it away. And when, when you have people in your chair with a telling you that their migraine is a seven out of 10 or an eight out of 10, that's really bad. And when in 20 minutes, it goes to a two and they go, oh my God, this will take me a day and I'd be on all these medications. And oh my gosh, how could this happen? So they go out and they talk to all their people that they know with migraines. And so how many people come rushing to neurofeedback for migraines? Very little, very few. Why? Now, why is that? Why is it hard? Or when you have success with ADHD or if you have success with anxiety and people go out and they tell their friends because I hear them tell me this. How many come? There are lots of other clinicians out there in the world that you go to, your doctor, your therapist, your uh, uh, support, and they go, well, I've really never heard of this. So, and they're not comfortable explaining it. So they kind of, yeah, damn it with faint praise. Well, maybe that's something you can do sometime, but you really need to do these other things first. And that's how often it happens. Well, it's true, do-it-yourself mental health, right? I mean, the, the brain's healing yeah. itself, you're healing yourself. Um, I, I think that that's right. it's, it's, it's so, so simple, it's just a simple reward system. Uh, I think the technology scares people. I know it, it scares a lot of the, uh, the technicians and psychologists that we have, you know, coming in to do, to do this. Um, and then the migraines, that's a popular one, Mike. Uh, what, what percentage in your experience do you feel gets a positive outcome f uh, from coming in and getting uh, a treatment for migraines? So let me make a couple of points before I answer that, which is there are certain ways to train migraines. And so you have to be trained on how to use your technology to do that. So I had somebody who came in yesterday who has had 60 sessions of neurofeedback with another clinician who said that their headaches were not affected at all. Now, whether they actually had migraines or not, that's a whole... For me, I was actually shocked by that because back to your question, what percentage do I expect to have benefit? Um, I mean, we use terms like 75 to 80%. There are two actual published studies that give you those percentages in the published scientific literature. Um, but the fact is I kind of expect to almost always get help. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's, if, if I fail, I mean, if somebody's not getting benefit, I'm figuring, how do we change this? What else do we do? I'm calling other clinicians. Gee, have you ever had a case? And it's very rare that at this point, and I do more than one thing, we don't always just do neurofeedback. There can be a multiple modality approach. Uh, you know, if people don't realize they're eating cheese and cheese is a major contributor to migraines, that's probably not a great thing either. But, um, those, that's the kind of thing that I would say. It's just a very, very high percentage, 75, 80 or higher. You just don't want to make statements too strongly, but it takes some well, time. You can't just do this. You got to make sure you've covered all the bases. Well, like it says in your book, it depends, right? How good is the technician? How good is the clinician, right? Uh, you could come in with a below average uh, practice and you got to do 70 sessions versus you get 20 from somebody that's experienced. 
Dr. Laura, Dr. Wren, do you have any uh, opinions on that? I know how you guys love to throw out numbers. I, I had a follow-up with Mike, uh, actually two, and one was, you know, without throwing anybody under the bus, um, what did you make of this uh, client's statement that they'd seen somebody for 60 sessions and, and no benefit to their headache? And then the other question was, you know, just side effects. We were joking. It's not funny if you're getting a migraine from neurofeedback, but we were joking earlier about how, how um, you know, you can create symptoms as well. And so I wanted to have you talk about maybe side effects and neurofeedback. But the first was, what would you make of the 60 sessions, no benefit statement? So um, when you go to an, a doctor who's going to give you medication, does the best doctor know exactly what to do? They probably don't. They probably are good at saying, let's try something. If that doesn't work, let's adjust it. Let's change it. Let's follow it very carefully and make adjustments. Well, neurofeedback, from my perspective, is the same way. The more you can customize the neurofeedback to fit the client, the more able you are to help. Because every brain is unique. Every brain is a little different. And you have to help adjust things to respond. So there are some models of training out there that says, I'm going to look at all the numbers. I'm going to do this little brain map or a particular type of brain map. I'm going to look at the numbers. We're going to train your brain to make these numbers do a certain thing. And then instead of customizing the training to fit how the client is responding to the exercise, like when you go to the gym, did you like that exercise? Yes or no? If you don't like it, if you're a little sore, adjust it. We're a gym. Adjust the darn training. This is a case in which they, used, they didn't adjust the training to fit the client. They just had a system that said, we're going to do this. So you want to work with, I mean, my bias is, and I'm not saying it's right, is if you work with people who have been trained to adapt it to each individual, they have a better chance of responding to the symptom. Your headache's not getting better. Let's change something. Let's not do the same, same darn thing for... <laughs> And not effective. And just to, real quick, then I'll, then I'll uh, definitely yield the mic. Um, just to clarify, real quick for listeners, um, we're using training in a couple of different contexts. One is professional training, and so that's education. And then also that the sessions for neurofeedback are referred to as training. And so that's just want to put that out there. Thank you for complying. So, so Mike, you know, I, I think you're hitting on this other piece. So. Um, you know, we all have a background in psychology and uh, I'll, I'll have a background in listening skills. And I think there, you know, the clinical aspect has to kind of raise things to the next level. You can do neurofeedback, like you say, it's, it's not um, regulated necessarily and anyone, so to speak, can, can do it. And, you know, there's tons of education available, you know, certainly on the internet and all sorts of people have, um, you know, tutorials and instructions and all these things we can get, uh, you know, on the web, which is fantastic because, yeah, 20 years ago, you couldn't learn psychology, you know, through through a computer, you know, learning on your own pace. So I, I think things have advanced. But what I'm getting to is, you know, if, if we're relying only on the patient's report, um, in, here, here's my example. I had a patient come in the other day and he, they wanted neurofeedback. They did their own kind of research online and said, oh, hey, you know, I want this for my kid. I don't want my kid on tons of meds. Let me try neurofeedback. And so you ask, you know, kind of the lay person, you know, what, what kind of symptoms are you struggling with? And, and this person said their son had uh, anxiety 
And so if we went after anxiety as a symptom, you know, we might, you know, get, get some results for that. But, you know, being a psychologist, I was kind of listening to the person talk and going, wow, he's saying, you know, some kind of bizarre things. I had him do a quick drawing, you know, it's a projective test for uh, looking at uh, psychosis. Turned out he had uh, uh, par paranoid schizophrenia. The drawing was pretty immature. And then I did a mini IQ test and his IQs in the 60s, which is very, very low. And so I, I think the clinical aspect of things kind of brings another level of, of assistance to doing neurofeedback. And, um, and so when you're talking about migraines, you, you know, there, there is kind of this listening skill and this clinical experience that has to come to the, to the table to, to raise the effectiveness. And just real quick, I, I had a, another person the other day who said, after my neurofeedback training, I had, uh, I had a nonstop headache. And I, you know, kept digging in. What do you mean nonstop headache? Well, my scalp was hurting. I'm like, your scalp was hurting. And, and so it, it's always peeling back the onion. Um, and so it's just not, I would say, you know, this phrase, you know, we're not putting you in like a lamp. We're, we're kind of, like you said, kind of going back and forth, you know, trial and, you know, using our clinical experience. I don't want to say trial and error, but we're trying different things and, and kind of adjusting. Um, and it's not a, a one size it's all uh, kind of thing, right? A couple of things. One, I wholeheartedly agree that one of the challenges of parents even thinking, of, I mean, there are actually some things that you could go online and try to find something and do it on your own. You, you better have somebody knowledgeable to help you because you don't, as you said, they come in and they start explaining what they perceive that they've looked up online or they've even been told by other clinicians is the problem. And that might not, I mean, the more you dig in, the more you understand what kind of problems that you're training. And that has to inform exactly how to think about training and whether you need more analytical data. Actually, you know, the more complicated the case, the more you may need to look more carefully at the underlying EEG. So there's a lot of assessment piece, both from the ther therapeutic side, being able to judge progress. I mean, you know, you can, if you work with a, a kid that's very withdrawn and you say, we don't want this kid to be as withdrawn. We want him to be able to come out. And then after three sessions, they go, you should hear what my kid is saying to me. It is terrible. And you're like, well, you wanted your kid to come out. This is actually kind of normal. <laughs> well, we liked mm -hmm. it when he wasn't saying anything to us, you know. So right, right. That, uh, having a good therapist to help you guide through, uh, there's lots of change that's happening. And neurofeedback is a tool to help change, but how's that going to fit into the whole dynamic and your environment? And how do you interpret, well, what does this mean when they respond this way? Right. And, and there's a flip side to it also, right? And I, I, I say this frequently, that uh, the diagnosis doesn't matter, right? So there's not a flag on your brain that says, aha, here's the anxiety part or here's the whatever part. Um, we're looking at dysregulation. And as you say, we're, the brain's going to correct itself. It has a, uh, you know, innate ability to, um, you know, regress toward the mean or, or get healthy or get better. And it does it on its own. And the neurofeedback kind of nudges it toward normal, right? I, I think that's a great way to describe it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was in my book. Can I put that in my book yeah. next time? You may, yeah, that can be in the uh, <laughs> appendix.
Well, like you say in your book, Mike, as long as learning can occur, an individual can almost always respond to brain feedback. So the key key thing is to be be patient, right? Everyone learns at a different rate. Well, it's to be patient and it's to adapt the learning. It's kind of like, what's the best way to learn math? I mean, there's probably a thousand ways to teach math concepts. Some people don't do well. I can't learn math this way. I have, you have to teach it to me in a different way. So do I have somebody who can help me if I'm not responding to neurofeedback in a reasonable progression? Do I have somebody who can help figure out, well, what way do I need to learn this so that I can do better? Um, and so that is, that's part of the process. But isn't that part of the process of learning? I mean, I'm not describing anything other than learning. I mean, every, anybody who can learn, that's really what the book is saying. I mean, even trial and errors, I have get people go, well, how do you know when neurofeedback is doing something? How do you know when I'm making changes? You know, do you look at the EEG, the brain waves, and does that tell you how my, well my brain is doing? And I say, well, let's take a much more sophisticated example. Let's say you go to the top psychiatrist in your area and they give you a pill. How do they assess whether the pill works? They ask you. <laughs> and then they explore, okay, what does that mean? And how do we, you know, how do we use that information? The best way to determine ultimately whether your brain is functioning better is to to have a uh, very in-depth interaction with the parents, with the adults, you know, with the individuals, uh, and even with the kids who sometimes can tell you really great information. It's amazing how well you can get feedback from kids. And um, so neurofeedback is really just use that information and have somebody knowledgeable enough to help adapt, adapt and adjust. Uh, and as you said, Laura, to give the brain a chance to find its own balance or to get itself into a better balanced place. Uh, so as a, as a provider, it's, it's nice to be reminded, but I think you're introducing this idea, Mike, that there's some art to this scientific intervention, right? There's, there's technology and science involved in neurofeedback without a doubt. Right. And lots of studies that support its implementation all over, but you're, you're at least my ears saying, hey, it's nice to know the parameters, but you need to work within those parameters to help an individual who's going to respond individually. And that's the art. That's, that's the piece that's enticing. The, best, the yeah. best psychiatrists, the best psychologists are the people who can best adapt their tools to fit their patients. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's what you're just describing there. And um, I don't know if you call that art or if you call that the part of the practice, but um, it, it, it's, it's having the skill set to help adapt. And we are fundamentally adaptive creatures. And if our, we have maladapted, so, you know, sometimes, I, I mean, one of the ways that we, I talk about anxiety and obsessive. So you have lots of people with a racing brain, they get stuck, they can't stop thinking about things or they're a little bit on the obsessive side and that gets in their way. And they can be very consumed by it, right? Or very anxious. So I'll say to them, well, look, let, let's look at your obsessiveness or your anxiety. You are great at that. 
you do an excellent job of being obsessive. You do an excellent job of being anxious. Your brain has that pattern down really well. So now we just need to help your brain be equally good at being calm, at quieting your mind, because you're already really good at something. We just have to make you equally good at the other. We just need to help you exercise those patterns so that you can strengthen those circuits. People get this really quick. No pill is going to teach you how to change that pattern. You know, if I got a weak arm, I got to just exercise it and make it stronger. Let's make your, the part of your brain that's racy stronger so that you can quiet it instead of having your life ruled by it. Do you mind just talking about side effects that maybe come up in sessions, Mike, and how you address that? Well, let's define side effects for a second. Yeah. All right. So I often will say to people, I'm going to use the gym example. You have gone to the gym for the first time and there's these things called weights. And somebody says, I want you to push these 10 pound weights above your head five times. Now you've never done that. And you do it and you go, Oh, that was, that was cool. And then wait, how do you feel the next day? So the answer is often, oh, well, I might be tired. My arms might be more tired or might, they might be sore or they might, or you might not notice anything, right? But it could be sore. So if your arms were sore and you never had that happen, you could say, gee, I never want to do that again. That was no good. My arms don't feel good. I did this thing. And, they, and everybody tells you, no, actually, that's a good thing. That means you are working the part of your, your arms that really need the help. Well, guess what? When you train your brain and you get your neurons, the machine's not doing anything. The machine is helping encourage your brain to make more activity. How is it going to feel when you make more activity over your right temporal lobe and you do that for 15 minutes? How are you going to feel tomorrow after you've worked out your right temporal lobe? You might feel great. You might feel calm. You might feel a little sore. What would a little sore be like with your brain working out too hard? You know, you just worked your brain out hard. Maybe I'm a little more irritable. Maybe I'm a little more annoyed. Uh, maybe I didn't sleep quite as well. It's all, by the way, could that happen if you like overstudied or if you got into an intense argument with somebody? Or I mean, anything can trigger these kind of issues. But you actually exercise the circuit. And if you have stuff come up, then the next time you come in, the clinician who's listening to you says, let's adjust that exercise a little bit. Let's, you know, reduce it or let's change it a little bit so it's a little lighter. But this is part of the process. Being sore in a gym, if you can't, if you, if you can't handle being sore going to a gym, don't go to a gym. You know, this is strictly a gym. So you're going to work out and things, you'll never see things go long term. Worse, they're going to get better. You're just going to say, as part of the process, things might stir up a little, but not new things, but things that typically you already deal with. And that just means, oh, we're in the right place. Let's keep working in that until you don't have those kind of symptoms. Does that make sense? So that's actually an argument. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's actually an argument that things are, are moving. Something's happening. Right? So people will say, well, it doesn't do anything. But yeah, now it actually does do something. If you're tired afterwards, something's happening. Yeah, people go, oh, my kid fell asleep in the car after the training, and that never happened. What's wrong? That's good. <laughs> so, um, 
My, Mike, in your, in your book, uh, I want to touch on something. When new people come in, because we have a lot of, lot of new listeners, a lot of new parents that come in with, the, with their kids. Does a new client that comes in, do they all get a brain map and then a QEEG? Or do they come in and then they get the training right away and you figure it out as you go? Uh, how does the process well, let's work? Let's talk for, for a second about, I don't know if everybody knows what a brain map is, but that just means that you measure a whole bunch of spots on your head and look at the EEG, the electrical activity at multiple different locations across your brain. You compare that against what is called the norm or the typical, what's typical and where it's significantly different. That helps give us clues as to where we might train. So because your brain is way different than, than typical, you know, in this particular area that relates to obsessive or anxiety or attention. So that's what a brain map does. It gives you more analytical data. But in addition to that, we have a, a psychologists and neuropsychologists have a huge amount of literature that says, okay, when you have obsessive thoughts, that's over an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate. When you're, you know, when you have hard time calming yourself, okay, your temporal lobes are playing a role. So we, we know a lot about where to target without always requiring the test. And so it's ultimately a judgment for each clinician to work with their clients to make that decision. But, you know, when you go to the doctor, the doctor will often say, well, I kind of know what you got. We could do all these blood tests, or we could just kind of work towards treating what you have. And if that doesn't work, we can always do the blood test later. So that's the way I view the, the brain map. It's kind of like a blood test. Do you need to do a blood test for everybody? Or you can go, oh, you know, I'm really used to this profile. I've worked a lot with this as a clinician. Maybe we don't need to start with a map. And so that's a discussion I have with clients. And it's a, made on a case-by-case -case basis. Does, any additional comments? Because all of you also have to deal with this same question. I think, um, uh, I don't know if we do it 100% of the time, uh, but I think it gives uh, communication, gives a language to, you know, discuss what we're doing, you know, with the, with the clients and, you know, the parents, if they can see a, a map on a, on a screen, at least, you know, maybe gives a little bit of credibility. Uh, um, but I agree with you that, yeah, I was just thinking that whatever, 20 years ago, we didn't have the technology and neurofeedback was, you know, operating on a, in, in, to me, I mean, I, I know we have all the Z-score training, which means we're, we have a database. We can compare your uh, brain function against uh, a, a normative uh, population, a sample of people who are, are supposedly uh, have normal brain functioning. And we can train your brain, so to speak, toward normal. That's, that's certainly, you know, the newer technology. But, but to me, it seems like the, I'll say the older stuff where you know, you're uh, being very specific with, with your knowledge about brain functioning and, and connecting those uh, areas of the brain to the symptoms that, yeah, you can do very specific training with one and two channels, whereas, you know, these days we have 21 channels and more or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, we didn't need the maps back then. Now it, you know, maybe gives a little bit of credibility or objectivity um, and helps maybe monitor some progress sometimes. Some of the best trainers, neurofeedbackers I've ever come across are really, really not well known, but top neuropsychologists in terms of their intensive knowledge of the brain. 
I mean, neuropsychologists as a specialty just study the brain and where are things coming from. And a few of these people were able to just take that knowledge with, like you said, these early, I mean, one and two channel systems, which I still do, uh, sure. meaning targeted training and yeah. have tremendously positive impact with their knowledge based on their knowledge of the brain and how, as you also said earlier, how to interpret what is being told. You know, you can't just take what somebody says and said, I have anxiety. What does that mean? I have anxiety. I have ADHD. What does that mean? It's, there's so many different things. So if you have that knowledge and the understanding of these problems, you know, I, I'll, I'll take somebody's knowledge like that over, you know, do I have to have a brain map, frankly, any day? On our end, uh, in, in what we do at our practice, and, and easily out of the four of us, we do the least amount of neurofeedback training. And where we've been using the cue, and, and to, to echo what Laura just said, the technology allows us to do this now, is we'll do cues that take effectively you know, a half an hour of somebody's time. Um, obviously, there's more time added on the interpretation end, which is our end. And this is the brain map that we're talking about. This yeah. is for the Q, yeah, the QEEG brain mapping. And we'll use the information from the cues to supplement, complement, even uh, lead the way in interpreting someone's functioning and, and for a neuropsychological evaluation, which is about brain behavior relations. And so we don't use them for everybody because they're not appropriate. But if, for example, we'll get someone in who's had a TBI or even uh, somebody with, uh, you know, some of the cognitive decline type uh, diagnoses, dementias, et cetera, uh, that six hours of testing doesn't work because of fatigue and other issues. Now we can do a cue and again, complement that or surround that with some practical tests uh, and, and get a full rich neuropsych eval. That's how we're using the cues. Again, not, not every time, just like you wouldn't for neurofeedback. And sometimes it's, led to discoveries, conclusions, whatever you want to call it, where, hey, there's this reported behavior that was diagnosed in, you know, in, in this manner, but we're seeing things that would contribute similarly to the behaviors that are observed that just don't look like anxiety, like maybe, or doesn't look like ADHD on the brain mapping. So then you're able to have a different conversation with the individual um, on just suggesting maybe alternate treatments that are currently in place, right? So it, it's allowed for that. But anyway, short, short uh, message here is we're using the cues um, for a slightly different purpose uh, and, and again, to fit into the neuropsychological evaluations, but not all the time. And we, and we right. probably use 70% of our clients probably have brain maps. But what I'd say is I like your comment that it often shows things that you might not expect that you wouldn't yeah. necessarily pull it up. The more complicated the case, I mean, if it's a more complex case, we almost always recommend it. It's just that sometimes they come in, it's like, this doesn't seem that hard. Let's try a few. And I've had success with some of that too. So it's just still unique. Good. Yeah. yeah. And, and we um, uh, kind of invested in, in, you know, the technology just keeps improving. And, you know, we have these little amplifiers, you know, not much bigger than a cell phone. Um, and, uh, you know, when you invest in the, the you know, more... Um, uh, advanced technology, you, know, you can get a 3D picture of the brain, and it's in real time. You can see someone's brain functioning. Uh, 
uh, I have the deep cortical le levels and, you know, Mike and Skip are going to know what I mean by that, but, but we can go deep rather than just measuring at the scalp or, or listening at the scalp level, we can go deeper into the deeper structures and look at things like, uh, you know, memory structures and thalamic structures, which has to do with, um, uh, behavior uh, gating and, and, and things like that. But we also have ability to get into the cerebellum. We talked about that last week when we were uh, interviewing with the uh, autism folks. So there, there's some, some newer things that we can look at deeper. And, um, you know, like you said, you know, neuropsychology is much like geography. You know, you, you know the more you, you, know, you look, you, you, the, the more labels in, in parts of the brain you can understand. And and when you have deeper pictures of these deeper structures, it just, you know, helps communicate. And, and I, I think when I, I know I'm, I'm just kind of wired to use, you know, the, the neuroanatomy terms, because I guess I studied geography a lot, but, um, but if you can demonstrate to the patient, you know, some, you know, a level of competence, you know, they may not understand everything I'm saying. And I do practice that try to, you know, simple things down for people. Um, but I think if you can demonstrate, hey, I know what a cerebellum is, and here's in layman's terms what that means, and we can show you a picture of it, um, you know, so for someone who's a little skeptical about this, I, I, I think it just, you know, adds a level. And, and I'm a psychologist anyway, you know, without the scans and without even the neurofeedback, I can, you know, help you understand what's going on with you. And, and, and you know, it's, it's up to them, you know, to the person to, you know, what do you want to do about it? Here's some options and, and let me know which, which you, where you like to go with this. The thing about neurofeedback and you know, we use a lot of technical terms and more in-depth understanding of the brain is that as as someone who wants to actually help fix the problem in other words i'm dealing with anxiety or depression or attention or migraines or you know concussion stuff uh cognitive stuff i don't have to know any of that i can just watch a game and uh my brain will kind of tune in i mean so many people are worried well, what am i going to have to do and that's part of the reason I also wrote about the book. People get nervous. What do I have to do? My brain can't do this. You, you know, it's kind of like if you stand on a balance board. Everybody's been on a balance board. You get on a balance board and you flip over or you flip to the side because you can't find balance. And then eventually after you practice it enough, you balance. So in many respects, you don't have to know anything. You just let your brain figure it out. That's really what neurofeedback is. It's just you get there, you start watching, and your brain figures out how to do it. So you, you do have to have somebody who guides you as to what is the best training and what is the best exercise. And what the book is trying to do is to say, you know, what are the, I mean, it goes into more depth. Well, how does your brain actually learn from a bunch of beeps? How does your brain learn from a movie coming in and out? What, what is that about? And it makes it, you know, I tried to make it really simple, as well as address some of the not only the questions that came up here, but a lot more questions that people haven't necessarily thought to ask, but they will have. Um, and, and, you know, even like, how does it affect meds? If I come and I, I'm on meds, you know, can I do neurofeedback on meds? Yes. Well, what are the implications of that? And so I get into more discussion of that in the book and what's the practical answers to some of those, but it's very helpful in, in often reducing the meds, but that's, you have to at least understand the process. So, you know, people can get, you know, overwhelmed, uh, and obviously there are professionals listening too, but with the, do I have to understand everything about the brain and what do I do and how do I learn? But really, fortunately, the technology is actually simple. And even, you know, I'll even say that, you know, I've taught clinicians who, you know, in a relatively short time were go, able to go back and help clients 
now they got they had a lot of mentoring they had a lot of help to kind of go up the learning curve but you know you guys have been doing this you know for for a while and you you've developed with your knowledge of the brain uh with your knowledge of how to use the tools and help people um it's remarkable you know how many people get benefit from exercise what percentage would you say 98 percent how many people get percent exercising their brain uh, if, if they have somebody good to help coach them. Uh, I mean, the percentage of people who get benefit is extremely high. The challenge, and this I talk about also, when does it not work? Gee, I've done five sessions and it's not working. So, I, I, you know, I don't think this is going to work for me. How many people go to the gym five times and know that they're in a lot better shape? Probably a relatively small percentage. So, I think that the challenges really are, you know, it's exercise. Can you, can you work an exercise program and build and, and strengthen your brain? And most people can, but what is, you know, what percentage of people quit the gym before they get in good shape? Unfortunately, <laughs> a fairly high percentage. Uh, so it's, it's having a good coach. And, you know, I, I think of therapists really in this case as, playing a role, a really important role in coaching and helping you kind of work through and achieve your goals. So that's what I encourage people to do, to understand enough that you feel comfortable with the process and hopefully the book can help, but there's other resources, uh, including your other interviews that you guys have been doing and, um, and just realizing this is exercise and I can, and, and you, you can do it. And what amazing and I, I'll comment on it but you two should also uh, how quickly do you see people start to change I mean sometimes it takes a while but in two or three sessions many people are able to say wow some you know my anxiety is a little better or I, I paid a little better attention although that one sometimes takes longer or uh, my sleep was a little better what do you see yeah. we had a girl you know Trichotillomania, pulling her hair out, pulling her eyelashes out. Um, and she was on the spectrum diagnostically, and so she was not so communicative. And second session, maybe third session that mom brought her in, um, and is often the case with parents, mom was tearful in a, in a good way because she was able to report that her daughter wasn't pulling her eyelashes out. And, and the only difference- Three sessions. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. But what did you do to her? Oh, training wise? No, I mean, yes, training wise, but I, I always like to point out that what you did Nothing. is really? you gave, you let the computer tell her brain yep. when she's doing better. That's what you did. For sure. Three 20 minute sessions was what happened. Yeah. yeah. And picking and, the reward. Yeah. There, the, there obviously was some technical, technical yeah. work involved, but Mike's point, I think that everybody, agrees is that her brain is what learned uh, what to do and it did it quickly. Yeah, on its rhythm. So, you know, the, the, I think you're touching on this earlier, Mike, that, and I think this is what also, also gets in the way of having this a little bit more mainstream. I think you're spot on with the money issue that that's, you know, number one, we don't have all the, uh, you know, triple blind studies that cost millions of dollars to, to run the research. But um, the other thing is that, um, you know, people ask, well, what am I supposed to do? And the answer 
is nonverbal. Like it's not something you consciously control. It's procedural learning. And just like you said, well, how do you balance on a balance beam? I mean, how do you explain that? You know, how do you ride a bike? How do you do all these things? And, and it's unconscious and people have to have a comfort level with, you know, sitting in a chair, watching Netflix and uh, training their brain, you know, uh, having it find a natural rhythm. Well, you know, people, people want to feel a little bit more control of their outcome. And so I think that makes people just generally nervous that I, I'm not, I'm not in control of what I'm doing. And I have to, um, you know, have faith, so to speak, in, in this nonverbal learning process, even though they do it all the time, you know, everyone's nonverbally learning all sorts of stuff, but, but to have them sit in a chair and, and kind of wrap their, their minds around that, it, it, I think it's, it's a stretch for a lot of people. And, and I, I think that's what we're doing at NeuroNoodle is, is trying to, you know, uh, again, mainstream it more, you know, take, uh, take maybe some of the, the science, uh, even though I talk a lot of, of, about science, but, you know, take it down to the level where someone's going to understand it and, and kind of break things down and, and give people that faith that, hey, you know what, I, maybe we can't explain it, the, um, you know, put it in, in, in great words, but, you know, ha have a leap of faith, so to speak, that, uh, you know, this does have outcomes and people do get better. And, and you know, back to the, you know, what we're discussing is that, you know, people will say, after their, you know, even one or two trainings, you know, I know something's different. I can't put my words on it. And, I, and, and that's exactly the point is you can't put your words on it because it's not a word thing. It's a, it's a doing thing that, you know, again, like you said, exercises the brain. So it's, it's not something you're, you're teaching yourself by talking to yourself. You're teaching yourself by the, this reward-based learning, you know, through the, um, the media and the feedback. I don't find people have a problem understanding it. One, I mean, right. they don't understand necessarily how to do it, but they also know you sit a kid down to play a computer game that they have no idea, a video game that they have no idea how to do. Kids are do easy. Ask, do they ask yeah. for the instructions? Yeah, yeah. No. Right. Nobody's the ever kids, seen a kid. kids do not argue, but it's the adults who want to micromanage. Yeah. The adults so, have a hard time. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think just having a good coach, having somebody that helps them explain it, most I've never had anybody feel too uncomfortable with the process. It that's just you got to do it. The book helps. I've found that that helps people get it a little bit more. But doing it, to tell you the truth, helps the most. And most people, once they do it, go, "Oh, I can do this. <laughs> this is easy." You know, they just have to accept that. Um, so I I think the the one other area that is actually a big issue in terms of why it's not more accepted is as a health professional, so if you are a PhD psychologist, if you are an MD, if you are some other kind of health professional, and somebody asks you, can you tell me if you would recommend neurofeedback? If you don't feel confident in your knowledge, how are you going to make a recommendation? So your tendency would be to go, well, I'm really not so sure about that. I need to do more research. I'm really not comfortable or familiar. And so many, many people are affected by professionals saying that. Now, if the professionals would say, I really don't know, <laughs> you can check it out. That would make it better, but most professionals don't do that. Uh, they don't say it that way. So is that a big obstacle? It's a huge obstacle. Now, it's not unique to more feedback. You know, you could say, gee, could this vitamin help me? And most health professionals would go, well, I'm just not so sure. And some of these vitamins have excellent research. It's just, 
so, you know, I'm hopeful, you know, I've had a number of clients that took the book and said, I'm going to give this to my health professionals so that they understand more. Uh, they just don't understand enough. So it's a big obstacle, but again, it's not unique to neurofeedback. It's, it's, there's lots of things that are out there that might help. And the health professional is limited by their license to not be, it's just, it would be better if they all said, I just don't know. It's, that would, that's an interesting question, but it's just not the way that comes out. Well, guys, man, we could, we could go for another hour on this. Yeah, maybe put it in part two, part two in our future. <laughs> Mike, th thank you so much. Uh, Mike Cohen, author of Neurofeedback 101 and uh, Center for Brain Training.com, Center for Brain Center for Brain.com. Center for Brain. Brain.com. Thank you so much. Uh, next week's uh, special guest will be Dr. Robert Thatcher, President and CEO at Applied Neurosciences Incorporated. Uh, he's got a little database, doesn't he, Dr. Laura? That's my understanding. <laughs> well, you're, 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 you're going to get a very brilliant guy, uh, and it'll be some really nice work to bring him down to earth. So. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, another brilliant guy, Mike. Another brilliant guy. Alan's taken. But, but, but Bob, Bob understands a whole lot about the brain. So that'll be and how to use the EEG information to, to target. So it's, it'll be a very interesting discussion. And then a special right. thank you to Lori, to, uh, Lori Counts for the awesome music that started off and ended the show. Very talented uh, musician. And speaking of that music, here we go.